Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. What is the unpardonable sin? Have you wondered that? Many people have wondered and worried about that. Jesus said, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. That's good. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. If you're a younger believer and just encountered this, or an older believer and you remember encountering this for the first time, that's very shocking. And certainly you've wondered, what is this sin, this blasphemy of the Spirit Some would say it's a final disobedience. It's simply dying in your sins. There's no repentance after you've died. The gates have shut in the parable of the virgins. And so now you cannot enter the kingdom. So is that the unpardonable sin? Well, it is an unpardonable sin. I don't know if that's what Jesus had in mind. I tend to side with the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon, who when he thought about this unpardonable sin said, I don't know what this is. But I do know what it means for you. If you are not right now in Christ, then you are like a man riding in his car wildly, or a woman driving by the edge of a cliff, and at any moment, one turn, one degree to the right, and you are over the cliff, and you are doomed. You could at any moment commit this unpardonable sin. That was Spurgeon's view. That tends to be mine as well, that I don't know what this is, but if you are lost, I cannot say that you are unable to commit this. If you're a believer, you cannot commit this. Rest easy. But if you're lost, it compels you to be saved. Why live in that danger? So I don't know what the unpardonable sin is. But this is one thing I do know about it. That it, whatever it is, it has to involve pride. And why does it have to involve pride? Because if you think about it, Pride is, at the end of the day, the only sin for which someone goes to hell. Every kind of sin is punished in hell. Don't misunderstand. But you could, if you lived your life and had committed literally every kind of sin known to mankind, but then gave up your pride, humbled yourself, and bent the knee at the foot of the cross, you would be forgiven all of those sins And you would see paradise. And if, on the other hand, you managed by common grace and sheer force of will to live the most moral life possible outside of Christ, do very little of those great grievous sins that you hear about on the news and you see in others, and you live a pretty decent life, and the one sin that plagues you is a pride that will not bend the knee to Christ, then you will go to hell. Every sin is punished in judgment, but ultimately it is the sin of pride that marks whether we spend eternity in paradise or not. That is the one thing that either prevents us at the gates of heaven or prevents us from ever seeing the gates of hell. It's pride or the humbling of our pride. This is why I'm, so you know, rarely troubled when people do come to me and ask about the unpardonable sin, concerned whether they may have committed it. If someone comes to me like that, I'm almost never concerned for them. 
Because if you're concerned about it, you probably have not committed it. Why? Because that evinces a humility. You see, if you've truly committed the unpardonable sin, I imagine you really don't care. Why? Because it's pride's involved. And pride does not tremble at God's word. It's humility that does. The people I fear for are the proud, not the troubled, but the humble. And if our eternal destination really is the most important element of this life, and I believe that it is, then this question of pride and of humility is the most important question. More than our discussions of other sins in the culture or in our lives, this is the fundamental question. It's, are you humble? As the proverb says in the Old Testament and the New Testament twice quotes, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That is one of the only passages in Scripture you find repeated three times. Once in the Old and twice in the New. And it's worth saying three times because it is an eternal principle coming from God's very being that God is such a God that if you are proud, he is against you. And if you are humble, he is for you. So, sometimes we make salvation more complicated than it truly is. Listen, God's already done all the, the work, the complicated work of salvation necessary, the substitute who dies in our place, Jesus Christ. God's provided for that. He makes the transaction. He gives us the righteousness of Christ when we come to him in faith. He gets our penalty. It's done with in the hours of darkness as God crushes his son. God's done the complicated parts of salvation. And the only part remaining now is when God applies that salvation to us. And it is simpler than we usually make it. It's this. God is opposed to the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And if you hear the gospel, which I just briefly shared, you heard that? If you hear that gospel and you hear it humbly, receive it and not oppose it, you receive it, you will never know judgment. God will give you grace. If at the end of your life there is found in your pocket that scrap of paper that was found in Martin Luther's pocket at the end of his life, which read, we are beggars, it is true, then you will enter the same paradise that Luther entered into. You will receive the bread of life. Only beggars get it. Only the humble get grace and the proud get opposed by God. This theme of grace that God, by his nature, always gives to the humble is the theme that we find in our text in Jonah today. We are in chapter 3. Jonah has been a wayward prophet in chapter 1. God told him, go to Nineveh, the wicked capital of Assyria, and tell them that judgment is coming and Jonah didn't want to go. So we have watched him run away, get on a boat, sail in the opposite direction, and God, by a storm, has him cast into the sea. Famously, as you remember, a fish eats him. <laughs> then spits him back out after chapter 2, when Jonah has finally humbled himself. And now we've just seen in chapter 3, this prophet Jonah, now humbled, told for a second time to go to Nineveh. Now he goes, and he is here preaching that judgment is coming to the city. 
And now we find what happens when he does that. We saw last week in verse 5 of Jonah 3 already a response, a positive response on the part of the people, but now it goes further, beginning here in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Here we have illustrated for us that thrice-repeated statement of God's being. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Only we have it in this text in reverse. God gives grace to the humble in this text, we first get a sight of the humble, and then we see the grace in verse 10 that God gives to the humble. So there's the humble, and there's the grace that God gives to the humble. That's the entirety of our text. Now, if you wonder why this matters, these are Ninevites. This was a long time ago. But they are men and women of a like nature as you are. They stand before the very same God that you must stand before at the day of judgment, that you are underneath as your creator. He has not changed at all. His requirements for mankind have not altered. He required of the Ninevites humble reception of his message, and they humbled themselves and were saved, received grace. And today, it doesn't matter who you are or your background or whether you're in Christ or not, it doesn't matter. If you fit in the category of the humble, then you have a grace that will deliver you from the pangs of death and from all future judgment. You have welcome into the family of God, and God relents of his anger and his wrath towards you. It's guaranteed if you're in that category. So I think you can see why this passage matters to us very much, because here we have those who enter into the category of the humble and receive grace. And those will be the two points of this message, because they are the two points of this text. We'll first consider those who are the humble, including a king, and then we'll see the grace that God gives to them and, of course, to us if we are humble also. So let's begin by just looking at the larger part of our text. Who are the humble in this text? You saw them... Verse 5 had informed us last week that the whole city believed Jonah's message, much to everyone's and Jonah's surprise, and it said, the very end of verse 5, they grieved, mourned their sin from the greatest of them 
to the least of them. And now we find out just what is meant by the greatest of them and what is meant by the least of them. You saw that here in verses 6 through 9 because we have both. The word reached the king, greatest of the whole city of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, took off his robe, covered himself with sackcloth instead, sat in ashes, and he issues a proclamation published through Nineveh by the decree of, here's the greatest, the king and his nobles, it's the greatest of them, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, animals, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. And look, let everyone, greatest to least, 120,000 people in a large urban environment, let everyone from the king down turn from his evil way, from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Those are the humble, from the greatest to the least in the city. You know that there are many parts in this book of Jonah that for the average reader, maybe not familiar with the church, can be hard to even believe. Of course, he was inside of a fish for three days. That's what we think of first, but this is actually equally miraculous. That a city composed of 120,000 persons should from the very top, from the king down, Repent so thoroughly. It's just as surprising as being eaten by a fish and surviving three days. We might ask, how is this even possible? Even for us who are Christians, who follow God and believe his word, it's surprising to us too, except that we're used to it, but it would be surprising to us too. Why? Because think of even the words of Jesus. What did he say about those who are rich in this world? That it would be easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Is the king of Nineveh a rich man? <laughs> Richer than anyone else in the city. Assyria at this point was not the predominant world superpower that it would be not too long afterward, but it was still a great empire, a great nation. And this is the capital, Nineveh, and this is the king of the capital. And so by virtue of that, probably considered the king of Assyria, He's a rich and powerful man, and not of a godly nation even, not of Israel, not of Judah. He is a rich man with immense power, comparable to the greatest of all men on the globe at that time, in an evil, pagan, idol-worshipping nation. <laughs> so in that context, I hope you can see this is surprising, <laughs> very surprising, even for us as Christians, that this would happen. When Jesus himself, a greater prophet, came in his own generation, consider how the rich and the powerful, the rulers of his day, responded to him. And he was far greater than Jonah. Herod tried to kill him. Pilate succeeded. So that the king of Nineveh, not even the king of Israel, Jonah's own people, but this foreign king responds with repentance. It is a shocking thing. Are we to believe that a king who, of course... For the stability of his reign requires the allegiance of his subjects, requires their trust. Often in the ancient world, this meant that the king was sometimes blended together with a view of God. So ancient kings at times were considered at least part deity. You can see the political advantage of that. 
And so that was common. So you don't admit your fault, not if you're a king, not in the ancient world. He does. Because, as Jesus would go on to say, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This is a miraculous humbling. There may well have been secondary considerations. You know in your own life that when God humbled you to accept Christ, for many, probably for most of you, there were circumstances in your life that had already been humbling you. Maybe you were at, to use a cliche, the end of your rope. You had hit rock bottom. And then the message of Christ is meaningful and you are humble and you trust in Christ and are saved. Usually there are secondary considerations. Maybe it's a breakup. Maybe it's some plan you had for your life. You get an injury and now you can't do that. It could be anything. There may have been secondary considerations for why the king responded so quickly to this random foreign prophet from an enemy nation who comes into his city smelling like a fish. So there may have been secondary considerations because, and this gets to a little bit of guesswork, but it's educated guesswork here. We said at the beginning of our preaching series on Jonah that we can approximately date when Jonah lived. And the reason is because in one of the books of the kings, Jonah the son of Amittai is mentioned as prophesying in the days of Israel's king, Jeroboam II. And we know fairly confidently that Jeroboam II lived in the first half of the 8th century B.C. So think 800, 750, think in that region of time. In 722, a few decades later, is when Nineveh, capital of Assyria, Assyria will come and destroy Israel. But this is several decades before. That's when Jonah's living. That's when he's doing this and making his prophecies. What's interesting is we don't have a ton of documents and evidence telling us what Assyria was like at that period of time, but we do have some. And the little bit that we have tells us that in that exact period of time, Assyria, which very soon would be the dominant world power, experienced several setbacks, such as military defeats, together with multiple natural disasters, which in the ancient world you almost always interpreted as divine disfavor. That was happening around this time. So, can I prove to you that God had used that to till the soil of Nineveh and its king to show them God or gods are angry at us? So, when a prophet comes in and proclaims that, they go, we already knew, we repent. I can't prove it to you, but it's likely. But whether God used secondary things or not to humble them, the fact is what we know from the text. He did humble them. The king himself was humbled. When it says from the greatest of them and then emphasizes that the king and his nobles, the nobility, that they humble themselves, you see that our text is placing emphasis, putting in bold text, highlighting with yellow the fact of their humbling because of someone who's already outside the city gate, a leper sitting in a pile of ashes. If they repent and are humbled, what are they giving up? They are still giving up things. But you understand that when a king of a foreign nation, powerful and rich, humbles himself, it is an immense sacrifice. He risks losing the trust of his subjects when he admits that he is wrong. So for him to humble himself, 
is the most immense humbling possible within the city of Nineveh. And that's exactly what happens here. His humbling in our text takes the form that would have just been common in that day and that time, the ancient Near East. Unusual to us, but it wasn't to them. So we see him getting up, the text says, off of his throne. He does two things. He takes off his royal robe, and instead he puts on sackcloth, which would have been uh, very much unlike a royal robe, to say the least. A very uncomfortable plain garment that signified mourning and grief and repentance. And then, after he does those two things, he sits down again, but not upon his throne. He sits down on a pile of ashes or dirt. We don't do that. <laughs> but maybe when we are humbled, we might prostrate ourselves on the ground. I was praying this week and did this. Prostrate ourselves on the ground, which similarly puts us close to the earth, and probably that's the idea here. Reminding us, abasing us, reminding us of our humanity. As my son very often tells me, Daddy, what are you made of? I say, bones and blood. He said, no, dirt. <laughs> and he's right, biblically. That's what God created us from. So that is the idea, sitting down on the ground, in the ashes, in the dirt, with a plain garment that was common in the day, and it was expressive of what? Grief, brokenness, abasement of myself, repentance for my sin. That's what it demonstrated at that time. So here he humbles himself in the common way at that day. Like I said before, he risks his reputation. Verse 7 says, he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king. This is not just a private decision he made in his mind that he'll just keep to himself. He's literally saying, it says through Nineveh. He's letting everyone know, probably through higher officials, but everyone is getting the information. The king is saying, listen, I've led you poorly. I was wrong. We are wrong. That's quite an admission from king of Nineveh. Look, you know this. You don't like to admit failure. And I'm with you. I don't like to admit failure either. And especially this is true in leadership because people are looking to you. This king is leading the city of one of the greatest nations of the world, and he humbles himself. This is true in parenting as well. You know this, that, not judging you, but you know that you've had an outburst at your children, okay? You have children? You've done that. All right, let's admit that. So you've wronged your children at some point, and what is the temptation? Well, you're the parent. You're in charge here. You're in command. You don't want them to see a crack in your armor. They'll shoot the arrow right through there. So you've got to stay strong and not let them know that you've made a mistake, that you've sinned against them. If they sin, spanking, discipline, okay, of course. But if you, then what? And the feeling is, for the sake of my leadership of my family, I have to not admit failure, wrong, or weakness. Some of you here are sitting here right now, and you've had parents who have done this. Never said sorry. Did that increase your respect for them or lessen it? And the reality is, your children grow up knowing that you are too proud to admit any wrong to them while you are committing wrongs against them. It doesn't increase their respect for you. It smells of hypocrisy. So I encourage you, humble yourself like this king even before your children. 
It's not an easy thing. You know that. I know that. That's why this text is so surprising. It's not an easy thing for a pagan king to do before his subjects either. And like I said, verse 7, and his nobles who come and agree with him, at least align with him and say, for all of us, the city's messed up. Now see again what they decree here in verses 7 and 8. These are men, powerful men, who are accustomed to sending out summons for war. Muster the army. Let's go dominate our enemies. Now what are they saying in this decree? Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The humility is beginning here at the top, or maybe started here, went to the top, and now comes down to the people, from the greatest to the least of them. Really, it doesn't matter where in the social spectrum these people fall. From the leadership all the way down to the most poor person in this city of 120,000, everyone together is urged to repent, to humble themselves before God. And so all of them, like we said before, just like the king did, they express their mourning and grief in ways appropriate to their time. You see the sackcloth again. You see fasting from food and water. Very difficult, but those were ancient ways of demonstrating we are broken and desperate. This isn't evidence of strength, mighty Assyria, fear us. This is evidence of weakness, being fragile and being broken. Now, you might, from reading the Bible, already have expected a lot of these ancient customs of grief. Maybe you knew about sackcloth. You know about fasting because it's still a practice today. Were you not surprised that the animals were included in this ritual? So we don't find that in the rest of the Bible. Now, I don't have to tell you that there were a lot of confused animals that day in Nineveh. Not sure why their food is not coming. Of course, they don't have reason, and they are not the ones calling out to God. They're not the ones repenting. They're not the ones who've sinned. They don't have an animate soul in the way that you and I do. So why would the Ninevites put sackcloth on their cow and not give food or water to their animals? These are herding animals or animals they use for food or sustenance. Why would that be? It is to express the extent of their grief and their mourning. Just like the phrase, from the greatest to the least of them, we think of that, of course, and rightly, of all of the humans in the city. That's true. But they say, that's not enough. We want to demonstrate to this angry deity that we're more broken than that. So they go even further to the least, down to the animals in their yard and in their barns. All of us together, animals, people, are demonstrating to God we are broken, we humble ourselves down into the dirt, mighty Assyria, down into the earth before this God that this crazed prophet has proclaimed in our streets. All, the point of all of this is simply that this is not a half-hearted humbling. You've heard someone say that to you before? I'm sorry. <laughs> that's a half-hearted humbling. You know what that's like? That's not what they're doing. This is stopping commerce. This is pausing the city. This is brokenness before God. 
Now, just as importantly as everything we've said so far about this humbling is the fact that this wasn't just an outward humbling. It was as if that word of Isaiah the prophet in the first chapter was written on their hearts, even though they were Gentiles, because they could obey what Israel herself did not obey. When God said, bring no more vain offerings. Incense, God said to Israel, is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, all good in themselves. God said to Israel, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. If there was only sackcloth and fasting, God would not care. He wouldn't want it. Isaiah continues, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. The repentance that God desires is not this rending only of the garments. He says it is the rending of the heart. It has to be a morning that's not just not letting your cow drink water. It has to be a morning that is also of the heart. And the fact is, in our text, that's what happened in Nineveh. That degree of humbling, not just external, but internal. I mean, look here at this decree, verses 8 and 9. Let them, at the end of it, call out mightily to God. Let everyone Turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Wash your hands, you sinners. That's what Nineveh's doing. Israel didn't even do that. That's what Nineveh's doing. Surely such faith was not seen even in Israel, but it was seen here in the city. And verse 10 reveals that wasn't just the decree. This is what happened. They turned from their evil way. So in brief... The humble, standing before you, it's a shocking sight, 120,000 urban dwellers from one of the greatest and most savage ancient nations, from the greatest, the kings and the nobles, down to the very least, every person in the city, not just externally, but from the inside out, humbled themselves before God. Did that mean they were truly saved? It did use the word believed God previously, so I'm inclined to think that they were. Things change later and future generations are not repentant and there will be judgment on them. But just this group in Nineveh, they are the humble. You wouldn't expect them to be. <laughs> it's the last place Jonah or anyone thought to find the humble before God, but there they are. And now the question arises as we move to the second part of this sermon. There's the humble. How does God treat humble people? He gives them grace. You'll probably remember the very tone of this king's prayer toward the end. You already heard it. In the captain on the boat two chapters ago before Jonah was thrown into the sea, do you remember when that captain woke Jonah up who was sleeping under deck and told him, cry out to your God, quote, Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now look at verse 9, this king. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This, if I can say it, is 
the question at the heart of the book of Jonah. This is it. It's that question right there. Who knows? Who knows if this God proclaimed to us by this prophet is such a God that when we humble ourselves, he'll relent and spare us. Who knows if he's a God who will give grace? He's not obliged to. He doesn't have to. Even the pagans acknowledge that. They've been so wicked. So much innocent blood has been shed. So much savagery. So much probably prostitution and immorality in the city that God is not obliged, even by these 40 days of humbling of themselves, to now relent and not destroy them. So, They're pagans. They don't have the oracles of God except what Jonah shared with them, which was, in 40 days, your city will be overthrown. That's all they've got. And they're just reasoning by common grace, just like the captain did on the ship. Perhaps. They're saying, who knows? But now, having read this passage, I can say with confidence the answer to that question. You know! Did you see verse 10? Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, they want to know, will he relent if they do that? They don't know. They don't have the book of Jonah. They don't have this in their sacred texts. You do. When God saw that, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Do they get grace? They don't know if they will. You know if they will. If you humble yourself before God, will you receive grace? Is God the sort of God who will give you grace every time? Even if your sin has piled up high to the sky such that like the Ninevites transgressions, it has risen before God. If that's your sin this morning, if you humble yourself, will you get grace? They don't know. The Ninevites don't know. The sailors don't know. You know. And the answer is yes. Some have wondered, in light of verse 10, how God, who is unchanging, could possibly change his plan and purpose for the city when he's already said that he's going to destroy it. You wondered that? You remember verse 4? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then when you come to our passage, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them. And he didn't do it. Wait, God said he would do it and he didn't do it? Isn't our entire hope built upon God doing what he said he would do? That's an issue. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Wait. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? You see the issue here? How could he have said that and not do it? It does seem complex. There's honestly a rather simple answer. And it is found in the principle that we stated at the beginning of this message. Thrice stated in the scriptures. God is this sort of a God. He is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That truth about God persists in all times. It is part of his unchanging nature. If you're concerned about God being unchanging in this text, how did this happen? It's because he's unchanging that he relented. Because this is what's unchanging about God. He's opposed to the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. 
So actually, if Nineveh had truly humbled herself before God and he did not relent but destroyed her, that actually would require a change of his nature. Because he would then be opposed to the humble. That's a, that would be a problem. So this looks like a problem, but actually, it's the solution to the problem. It's simply this. Every time God ever in the history of the world, including Jonah's declaration, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Anytime scripture speaks of future judgment, which it does often, and of hell, there is always in this lifetime implied, suggested to you, the possibility of repentance. The prophet Jeremiah spoke very clearly about this. If at any time there is a nation that is in wickedness and it repents, I will relent from what I said I would do to it. God says that directly. It's not because he changes. It's actually because he doesn't change. And for all time, he's such a God that when he sees the proud, he opposes and he judges and he crushes. And when he sees the humble, he gives grace. So, if this is always true of God, God's wrath toward proud Nineveh is not contradicted. It's just that proud Nineveh doesn't exist anymore. It's gone from off the face of the earth. The only Nineveh now is humble Nineveh. You too, before you were in Christ, you were an old creation, your old self, and God opposed you. His wrath hovered over your head. If you had died in your sins, that's what you would experience for eternity. Is it wrong of God now, as a believer, now not to bring that judgment on your head that you deserve? No. Because now you are a new creation. God was angry, wrathful at the old you, and rightly so. But the old you, where's the old you? Buried with Christ. Gone. Therefore, the new you is a humble you. <laughs> and God always gives grace to the humble. So long as you fit the description of the proud, you get God's opposition. That was true of Nineveh, of its king, of its people, of you. But when you're born again in Christ, you become a new creation. You transfer into the category of the humble. Not that you're perfectly humble. I know you're not. But you move into the category of the humble as a general description of your life. And for the humble, there is grace, not opposition. You know this from the word of God in a way the Ninevites just had to guess at. So what excuse would any of us today have not to humble ourselves before God. The sailors and the Ninevites humbled themselves a difficult deed on the basis of nothing but a slender possibility that this unknown deity might spare them. And now you are called upon to humble yourself before God, to believe in Christ. Even as a believer, if you are partaking in sin, you're called to humble yourself, to release it, to let that go, to turn to Christ. Not to harden your heart. Not to turn aside and be wayward. You're called to that too. They didn't know if they humbled themselves, humiliated themselves. The king didn't know if God would relent and spare them. You know. You know. So if this morning your heart is fixed in sin and you are outside of Christ... You have no excuse. What Jesus said of the people of his generation, he can say to our generation, 
The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they, not even knowing, being pagans, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus, the Son of God, incarnate deity, in the flesh, giving the oracles of God so that you know, you see verse 10. They didn't see verse 10. You see it. You know that God gives grace to the humble. You have no excuse not to humble yourself before God. You could say, I thought it was faith that made me right with God and not humility. Yes, but it's a humble faith. These things are so closely tied together that actually Martin Luther at the time of the Reformation when justification by faith was resurfacing his earliest writings, he talks about justification by humility (laughs) because he was working through this. Realized, oh, it's a humble faith. But you know that this humble faith, which doesn't require some great effort, you don't have to run a marathon. You don't have to get up and walk down an aisle. What is a humble, it's you bending the knee of your heart before God's sovereignty, his soul reign, just like the king of Nineveh did, believing his word, trembling at it, and placing your faith in Christ for salvation. When that happens, you know what comes next. There's no question, you get grace. It's as if grace were this massive, thousands of pounds of heaving water pressing against the flimsy dam that is our pride and trying to break through it and we are all the time trying to put up supporting beams to keep this flimsy wall in place, to keep God's grace away from us as if we loved eternal judgment. And I pray that if if that's you this morning, stop supporting it, you know, knock one of the beams out. Humble yourself before God. Let the torrents of God's grace rush over your life. You know that's the consequence. You see it in this very passage. That's exactly what happened here. If you have the temptation to say, well, I don't think it would do any good to humble myself now because I've been proud so long and I'm so deep into sin. Are you as deep as Nineveh? You, you murdered a bunch of people? That's what Nineveh did. Or you say, I'm just too proud. It's just part of who I am. I can't even imagine myself not proud. I just struggle with that. You know who else was proud? The king of Nineveh. <laughs> and he humbled himself like a little child and enters the kingdom. What prevents you from humbling yourself this morning? Believe it or not, the, the application is the same. If you are in some sin, clinging on to it in pride, wanting to write the rules for your own life, now's the time to burn that piece of paper of rules. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and I promise He will exalt you at the proper time. He will give you grace. God's character cannot change. That means if you humble yourself, you will receive His grace. And if you do not, He will oppose you to the bitter end. Be humble, get up off your throne. Get down onto your seat of ashes and you will receive grace. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for providing for us as your people whom you love, not only instruction, but example. Because we are people. Not only, Jesus, did you incarnate to walk among us and give us the example of your own life displaying the goodness of God to us, but Even here in the Old Testament, we have in the people of Nineveh the prime, perhaps the supreme example in all of history of you giving grace to those who humble themselves, even if they are wicked, 
beyond, beyond almost all others on the planet, yet your grace is stronger and triumphs over it. You saved wicked Saul and made him the apostle Paul so that he said, in him might be demonstrated the perfect patience that you have for those who believe. And I plead for you, for any who are here who doubt that perfect patience, doubt that there is for them a warm reception from the Father they have spited, I pray that you would prove to them there is a ring of gold and a robe you are eager to place upon them if they will humble themselves before you and accept your method of salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. And for your people, because we also need this instruction very much, I plead for any who are caught in any snare and in any sin or even the beginnings of temptation to turn away from you for all of us, Lord, that you would Knock us down at the knees and bring us into the dust of the earth. Help us to humble ourselves and to submit ourselves to you as our king every day and to receive with gratitude your grace. In 